Hello readers, this is Sky. On this week's show, you may notice that some of Katie's audio sounds a little weird. Kind of like that robot voice we have at the beginning and the end of our program. Most of Katie's audio worked out just fine, but uh, just so you know, you'll hear a bit of robotic stuttering in some places this week and next week. Uh, we'll have Katie's voice sounding back to normal for Handmaid's Tale Part 6, uh, and until then... Enjoy our journey into the Republic of Gilead. Here's the show. Adam and Eve, there's a garden of Eden. Surely much of that. Interlibrary Loan. The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Hello everyone and welcome back to Interlibrary Loan, the show where a group of friends read a book that is worth discussing and then discuss it a little bit by a little bit. Uh, if you have not yet joined us, you may want to rewind a couple of episodes because we are in the middle of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, today's section we read uh, chapter 9, Night, chapter, or section 9 I should say, section 10, Soul Scrolls, and section 11, Night. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. Katie, I wish I could like reach through the Skype call and give you like a, a throat drop. Or right now, Lauren and I are drinking some um, some chamomile tea, and I wish I wish that we could give some to you. Yeah, I know. I apologize for the sound of my voice. So let's get into it. I guess um, this section, Lauren and I were talking about that in this section, not a lot happens. I mean, obviously things happen, but. Um, not a lot it's, happens, but we learn a lot. That's true. Yeah, that's we a learn good way a lot of putting in this it. Section. We start off with night, and this is so. Uh, last time we left off with with the odd encounter that of Fred had had the commander, in which he says he wants to play travel with her, and so now we start this section off with uh, night, directly after that happened. And she, she talks about, uh, she, she makes interesting to me declaration that it's, is like so, so opposite of, I don't know, just like a, this kind of cliched declaration that people often make. And she says, um, perspective is necessary. And she goes on uh, to talk about, you know, if you don't have perspective, what, what is life otherwise? But she says, otherwise you live in the moment, which is not where I want to be. And I feel like, don't you agree that living in the moment is something that is always touted as a thing that one should do? And yet here is a Fred saying, no, I don't want to live in the moment. Uh, and of course, it's because her moment is not particularly nice. But I just found that uh, rather interesting right off the bat. I kind of sectioned off that that paragraph because I thought that was that whole part about perspective was interesting too. Yeah, I think uh, we we see a Fred consistently saying like, "I need to sort of protect myself from thinking too much about my present condition out of a sense of self-preservation." So she talks about perspective. She talks about not living in the moment, but then she sort of pulls herself back and, you know, says, that's where I am. There's no escaping it. Time's a trap. I'm caught in it. I must forget about my secret name and always back. My name is of Fred now, 
and here is where I live. So as soon as she starts this, I mean, the, the paragraph before that is this beautiful description of being squashed up against a wall. Mm-hmm. And as she, uh, you know, describes this, your own skin like a map, a diagram of futility, crisscrossed with tiny roads that lead nowhere. Um, and then sort of pulls back and, and, you know, buttons up again. Right. And uh, this is, of course, all in relation to this. Like, she's trying to make sense of this bizarre scenario that she now finds herself in because she doesn't really quite understand what the commander wants, really. Right. She doesn't know if this moment is a turning point. So she wants to kind of, like, zoom out and see, is this going to change anything in my life? Is this going to, like, have some kind of payoff, right? Because in that moment, she doesn't doesn't really know if this is actually meaningful or if this, like, if this experience that she's having is just a a one-off and she's going to be living this awful monotonous routine for the rest of her life and interestingly in this section we sort of come to understand where she stands both with the commander and with uh of glenn and some of the other uh handmaids in the republic of gilead right so this this section really reveals a lot um about uh you know the world of uh of of fred right um it's interesting she also says uh he wanted me to play Scrabble with him and kiss him as if I meant it. This is one of the most bizarre things that's happened to me ever. Context is all. She's pointing out the craziness that, like, in the time before, if someone had wanted to play Scrabble with her and wanted to kiss her like she meant it, that would have been quotidian. And now it's this enormous, treasonous, blasphemous, political, like, opportunity and risk and everything um and it's like it's crazy as the reader that you that brings you back to it too like you share a fred's uh apprehension and um understanding of this event as a crazy dangerous thing when in our lives this would also be very normal right so perspective is everything and context is all In the desert there is no sign that says, Thou shalt not eat stones. A lot of suicide in this section. We first get the the story that Afred tells about the documentary she watched as a child about the Holocaust and about a woman who is the mistress of uh, someone who ran the camp. Um, And she notes at the end of the section that the woman... On the documentary, uh, it says on the screen that the woman uh, killed herself days after the interview was recorded. Um, And I thought that was an interesting sort of like thematic parallel um, in the story. Later in the section, we learned that uh, Fred's uh, predecessor as the handmaid in the house uh, also killed herself and also went and to the commander's room and read books and maybe played Scrapple. In that same section, we learn the origin of of Fred's mantra that she has been repeating uh, that was s- scratched into the baseboards of her room. And she learns, she reasons that the handmaid previous uh, had learned that quotation from 
from spending time with the commander who said that uh it was it was a joke that they would that they would write in, in their textbook oh sorry so uh, it's no it's to me it's an interesting revelation on that phrase because so it certainly has meaning but at the same time uh it's kind of almost deflating that um that uh, that the origin of this phrase that the handmaid had learned uh was like a joke yeah it takes away a lot of the like the assumption that this is an act of resistance you know it seems more like some teenage girl has scribbled something that her boyfriend told her inside of her locker rather than you know an active resistance from a woman who has been like trapped and enslaved right the ultimate source is still the commander the man in power and so that you know takes away a lot of the uh the power that it had you could see it as kind of a fuck you to the commander. You know, she scratches this and then hangs herself from the from the lighting fixture. She's she's not offering up her womb as you know service to the furthering of the of the Republic of Gilead. So in this section, we also uh, have this interesting um, discussion of a, re- a reversal of power uh, because so um, a Fred continues to visit the commander and they play Scrabble. A Fred talks a bit about how the ceremony feels different now um, because it's not as, it doesn't seem as it was before quite as impersonal. Um, she says uh even like the commander almost accidentally like reaches out to touch her during the ceremony um and then additionally uh a fred feels differently about serena joy during the ceremony she feels guilty and also jealous but then she says specifically Fred says, also, I now had power over her of a kind, although she didn't know it, and I enjoyed that. Why pretend I enjoyed it a lot? Right, so Fred has become, in her own mind, the commander's mistress. And um, it's interesting, she started out as Luke's (laughs) mistress. Uh, Luke was married to another woman before uh, they were divorced, and and he married Fred. Um... But she kind of, she kind of laughs and she says like, wow, you know, like, even after all this, men still have mistresses. Like, some things don't change no matter what. Right. And in the lead up to that, I thought it was really interesting when she was talking about, you know, this, she was talking about this affair that they're having. And she starts becoming a little bit more bold with the kinds of questions that she's asking the commander. And at one point she, you know, she asks him well, why, why can't you share this with your wife? And his response is basically, she, she doesn't get me. And I thought it was really interesting that, that I thought it was really interesting that Fred saw this as purely banal. Like, this is the most boring reason for a man to have an affair. And it's just so typical. It kind of, again, it was something that kind of took 
the excitement and mystery away from the affair because really he has all this power and and the and he's he's bored with his wife and that's why he's sleeping around with the handmaid. Yeah. And by sleeping around, we mean playing Scrabble and getting well, kissed. Well, okay, sorry. I didn't. I guess I, I jumped the gun a little bit, but they do describe the, the, the Scrabble as kinky. Yeah. I mean, for them, like, Scrabble is sex in a way. Like sex, it is rich and stimulating and forbidden. And, uh, you know, they both seem to take this illicit almost sexual pleasure in it and he's taking something away from or she she talks about how how she's taking away something from from serena joy right that that this is an experience that she's robbing and like taking Mm -hmm. that that she can now not have with him even though she's kind of like rejected it and decided that she didn't want it in the first place yeah i mean serena joy and the commander's relationship is not a given you know um they talk about how, like, some commanders do have children with their wives and don't need handmaids and all. And presumably, despite all, I mean, maybe less often than we uh, we would be used to, but presumably some commanders have good, relatively good relationships with their wives. Like, this is a possible thing. I mean, like, you know, despite all of the, like, you know, crazy, horrific bullshit in their society, like, it's not forbidden that you know, commanders and their wives have poor relationships or have uh, good relationships with each other. So this is perhaps possible that they would act as each other's confidants or, uh, you know, uh, conspirators. You don't think so? I'm I'm extremely skeptical. Well, I don't think it would be very common, but I think it would be possible because the, all the commander would have to do is do with his wife what he is now doing with uh, with the handmaid. But I don't think anyone who is a commander in this system is going to, like, who will have risen the ranks mm-hmm. and done what it takes to get to that point will will have, I don't think anyone who's done all that will make for a good match for their, for their partner in that sense, because especially if they're condemning them to that kind of life. Well, but, like, what, um... But I, but you don't think that, like, the commander could choose to do what he's doing with a Fred instead with Serena Joy. Well, but he explicitly says that 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 she wouldn't get right. But like, let's uh, not Serena Joy specifically, because you're right. Serena Joy specifically probably wouldn't get it. But like with his wife, if his wife were someone else, no, because his wife is complicit in the oppression too. His his wife like was part of the problem that like led to this this society, and so she she's kind of incompatible with this you know platonic intellectual companion idea of of spouses anyway right she wouldn't be into reading vogue even back in the before times (laughs) i guess she wanted to burn it all um speaking of which uh the commander produces a old 1970s copy of vogue and describes it like a wine connoisseur and then gives it to a friend to read, um, which is super forbidden and sexy. And also, it's an old Vogue. <laughs> like. Instead, I felt like an old Edwardian seaside postcard. Naughty. What was he going to give me next? A girdle? Like she's she's struck by how 
silly and old-timey and, like, ridiculous this is, but also that this is, yeah, this is kind of a weird sex game that, like, she reads and he watches. But then she slowly is, you know, peeling off the veneer because in the th- on the third night when she when she uh, decides to ask for some hand lotion, she realizes how much of a game this is to him in some ways or how little he understands the like the humiliation that she's gone through um, over the past several years when he laughs when when she talks about using butter on her face. Yeah, and then, you know, he gives her the hand lotion, and she says, well, like, I can't keep this in my room. And he goes, like, well, wait, why can't you keep this in your room? She goes, they search our rooms. And he goes, what do they search your rooms for? And she kind of, you know, she says that she lost control a little. She says, like, razor blades, like, you know, all stuff we're not supposed to have. Well, and and she says, you know, you should know this too. Like she, she's impatient and angry with him because he doesn't seem to understand uh, her situation entirely, or the consequences of his power. Right. Yeah. He's he's removed from the specific oppressions and humiliations that she experiences on a daily basis. Other people do that for him, and he doesn't even know what's going on. Mm Hmm. And she also feels some uh, like infantilized by him it's insulting and also shows just how used to his power that he is do you guys find it weird that there's all this discussion about dry skin like skin and hand lotion when the action of this book takes place in the summer like that seems strange to me um i don't know maybe it's just me but like i my my skin only gets dry in the winter in like the cold months yeah mine does too (laughs) Right, like I feel like in the summer you generally don't need him. At least in the kind of like, it's the location of this novel is never made very specific. At least not yet, but it seems to be somewhere in like the United States, east of the Mississippi, um, and in those areas, like it's humid enough in the summer that like skin doesn't dry out as much. I don't know. Maybe the nuclear maybe, disaster messed everything up. Maybe she has dry skin. Who knows? That's true. Some people have just dry skin. Um, or maybe maybe like stripped of all... Like she's not allowed to have other like beauty or like toiletry products really. And so maybe sort of stripped over of all of that, the hand lotion becomes more of like a symbolic thing than like an actual need. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like her skin is really dry right then, but, like, hand lotion is the thing that all of the handmaids, like, obsess about because it's the thing that they miss most. And that they're just not given because they're not supposed to be, they're not supposed to worry about their looks. Um, They are wombs on legs. Right. Like, like makeup is way too big to desire, but, like, hand lotion is, is, like, something that they could, that they feel like they should be able to have or something, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. Surely must shut that thing. Because Adam said to Eve, You think you secure? You wouldn't give me none of that for beet and fruit. Yeah, so we learn about a little bit about uh, Fred's previous job that she had, and um, basically like a, a domino effect of things that occur. 
um, that lead to like the beginning of this huge shift in society. The first things that happen are there's a catastrophe and she says they, they blamed it on the Islamic fanatics at the time. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. Indeed. How original. <laughs> <coughs> that, sounds, and, that sounds oddly familiar. Right? Doesn't it? It says, keep calm, they said on television. Everything is under control. Uh, and I think under control is such an important thing there because you p- people use that to reassure you. Um, but when we th- talk about control in this book, it's an entirely different uh, connotation. It's not comforting. No, no, because... Um, control in, in really a context of this book is like subjugation well i think margaret atwood said at one point she's pretty active on twitter and i believe she she made a like a remark about the current political state and said that at the time that she wrote the handmaid's tale she thought it was kind of far-fetched mm-hmm but right now, like, she doesn't see it as being that crazy of I mean, an idea. This also describes, and I actually think in some ways it describes more what happened in the aftermath of 9-11. Like, I really feel like this kind of, like, what she describes basically is like, and no one said anything. Everyone was just staying at home and, like, watching their televisions and stuff. Except like, for Congress getting machine gun down. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, like people's reactions to these events in uh, Fred's flashback look to me a lot more like what people's reactions were after 9-11 than what people's reactions are in recent you know, times. I think having 9-11 happen it has kind of kept people from... Yeah, know, it's just kind of a, a, a blo- vaccination like, right. in our historical memory. Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. Surely must shut that thing, oh Lord. Well, it kind of creeps up. It's that, um, you know, they it happens slow enough that slowly enough that people don't immediately like freak out and react and start marching in the streets. And, you know, there is some resistance at first. But once things get violent from the state, people are like, oh, nope, too rich for my blood. Right. But also so in, a, in a Fred's personal uh, part in this flashback. Um, so she talks about, so she, she works at a library and she was going to like get a pack of smokes like she usually does. And so I don't know about you guys, but as as I was reading this section, I kept expecting something like big and shocking to happen, but it, it really wasn't. It just, like I said earlier, it was kind of this domino effect. It definitely has some Fahrenheit 451 overtones here um with the like references to censorship and you know the attacks on you know uh, like spaces of knowledge and you know and intellectual spaces yeah or in 1984 where you know knowledge is similarly tightly controlled and uh you know the pursuit of knowledge is forbidden Luke's reaction to this was telling too, where he's just trying to play this there, there comforting role, but doesn't seem that upset about it himself. That was really shocking to me. Yeah, I feel like I was like, wait, Luke, buddy, 
how how are you doing this man how are you not freaked out and angry and like gonna get to the bottom of this um but you know at this point luke may be you know justifiably so terrified of you know speaking out or you know you know what i mean like there may be nothing he can do um that you know wouldn't put him and a fred in enormous danger and so he's you know he he's like turning to like you know he's like turning away from it basically to to tell himself that uh that you know things will be okay yes and uh of notes you know luke did not lose anything uh and it's at the end so um uh it's the end of this section so luke is doing the there there trying to comfort her everything and says we still have and then trails off and fred says it occurred to me that he shouldn't be saying we since nothing that i knew of had been taken away from him um, it's only a Fred that has lost any control because as as Moira, uh, as uh, Moira notes earlier, um, yeah, Luke can use your money. You can transfer that over to Luke's uh, account and he, he can he, he can use that for you. He, he still has access. To that. I don't know. Yeah, that seems strange to me. Like if nothing else, if Luke is a capitalist working in a capitalist system, he should consider loss of a Fred's like possible future income and enormous blow to his like plans for the future right like right. if nothing else on that like really base utilitarian level luke has lost something of value um but uh, i mean but additionally there's all of this sort of like social and psychological and interpersonal like damage that this is doing and will do so yeah i find it hard to believe that luke doesn't feel that he loses something here well and maybe he's done some kind of personal calculus on his own and has decided that it is in his best interest and in the interests of his child that he manage um of fred that he manage his wife in a way and manage her emotional reactions rather than you know than being on her side on this because he thinks it's too dangerous or he sees you know a better outcome for him Right. Well, and and I mean that may very well may be what he's doing. He may be doing exactly what a Fred does in the sort of um, present day section of the narrative, the the A story, which is to say he's managing his own emotions and perceptions of reality for you know to for survival purposes. Like if he admits to himself and to a Fred that this is a catastrophe, then what hope do they have going forward? Right. Um, yeah, because uh, nobody wanted to be reported for disloyalty. But I still think it's interesting that she talks about there being um, a shift in um, a power balance between them. That the that the she talks about how the this social change has actually changed the dynamics of their couple in a real way because all of a sudden he has he's holding all of the strings he has all the power and that is a very desirable position to be in objectively you know when you have power in some kind of situation like this you get to make the decisions and you get to frame the way things go forward for your best interests because she says it she says at one point he doesn't mind this i thought he doesn't mind it at all maybe he even likes it we are not each other's anymore instead i am his Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in this section, like, the new government 
removes, you know, places all property belonging to women in the hands of their, like, next of kin, their male next of kin, uh, and then permits, uh, prevents them from owning property and from working. And uh, when you're subjected to that kind of change, it kind of doesn't matter what your arrangement is with your partner or family. Like, that becomes the model of your relationship. Adam and Eve, there's the Garden of Eden, surely must shut that thing. Adam and Eve, there's the Garden of Eden, surely must shut that thing. Um, we want to talk about them soul scrolls. Do you want to break down a little bit what the soul scrolls are, what this thing is that they're outside looking at? Yeah, it's a very powerful image. It's like liberty bonds. <laughs> or or like the indulgences that led to the Protestant Reformation, right? As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Like the idea is that you're you're paying people to pray for you. And by people I mean weird machines that have robot voices. Right. And so they're printing these prayers that then, like, as soon as they're printed, they go right back in. Um, And are recycled to be made into new prayers. Yeah. It's a really, really striking image of these machines talking to themselves and repeating the same things over and over again. Um, And it's so, like... It's like Willy Wonka's factory, man. Nobody ever goes in. Nobody ever comes out. Like, there's no people. Right. She's very clear that there's no, like, people who work there or do or are seen there. Like, this is, it's like this perpetual motion machine. Right. And yet it's supposed to be this great symbol of piety. That is located in where a, an, a lingerie store used to be, which I find. Yes. Perfect. Like, endlessly amusing. Mm-hmm. So they stare into the window of these soul scrolls machines, um, and of Glenn speaks. Uh, Do you think God listens? She says to these machines, um, and this is sort of like the. Uh, Do you want to take the red pill or the blue pill moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it seems to turn out that of Glenn is is pretty chill, right? Because the response is, neither do I. And so um, it's at this moment that they really kind of understand each other. Because of Glenn is the one who says, I thought you were a true believer. And of Fred responds, I thought you were. Um, and then of Glenn says, you were always so stinking pious. <laughs> so were you. And then of Glenn, uh, of Glenn responds, you can join us. They had one of name Keeper, one of name A. No, by that you must shut that thing. We don't really get a continuation of that story in that section. We'll have to wait till later. Well, what I think these sections are really do is kind of show this turning point where of Fred is having. Is, is gaining all of these connections in this world that she had been previously totally isolated in, right? She's having, like, she's having a more intimate relationship with the commander, and now she's got this potential friendship and connection to this underground network with of Glenn, and she's had these awkward glances and footsies and middle-of-night kisses with Nick, and so she's, despite herself, despite, like, just trying to live day by day and, like, you know, and, like, take 
pleasure and small happinesses and like, you know, guard her sanity, she finds herself grabbing into it, engaging with this world in a really weird, real way. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden of Eden. Surely much of that thing, oh Lord. Surely much of that thing. So what did you guys think of the last chat or the last section that we read? I think it was only one chapter, but it, it was... It was not very episodic or, you know, it wasn't, a, it, not a lot really happened in this chapter. Well, the night sections are all like that, right? Like they don't, like she's just, I mean, the action of each night section is just her like sitting alone and thinking in her room at night. So it's very much like those sections take place entirely in her mind. We do have a little bit of action though in the beginning where she, um, she and Nick exchange glances again. She's talking about like these glances between her and and Nick and also this exchanges that she has with the commander and what would Moira think about all of this. And she it, and and it all comes back to context like she said in the beginning of this section. Context is all or is it ripeness one or the other? There's we haven't talked about this but there's this recurring motif of ripening fruit um that has been I mean it's a pretty obvious metaphor for you know, fertility um, and, like, of Fred's uh, self-conception as, like, a vessel. Um, but in this section in particular, um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of a Fred describing herself as, like, a melon ripening on the vine or something like that. Um, and it seems like we are building in this section with, uh, you know, the connections to the commander and to of Glenn with some sort of... Um, like ripening in the novel uh or does it explode type of moment but then she uh she ends this night section with a rather interesting bit on prayer oh she is praying yeah this section is crazy it's great yeah she's basically reinventing or she's she's dictating her thoughts as she's saying the lord's prayer which is it's a really powerful literary device that Margaret Atwood is using right now, but it also just is, it, it just, it just works. It just, it's just a cool thing that she did. Yeah. And I mean, finally, like for perhaps the first time in this novel, the sort of crushing reality of her situation, you know, comes to her mind and the section finishes. Oh God, it's no joke. Oh God, oh God, how can I keep on living? Which is like, we the reader were kind of asking her that like on page two. Right. But uh, this is the, really the first time that it like all comes into clarity for a Fred. Well, maybe her situation now is in a different, like she sees her situation in a different context. Right, because she's starting to like break free from the egg, so to speak. From from this from her developing like relationship with the commander, her her perspective is shifting on her own situation. Do we want to move on to quotes of the week? Oh. I'll do mine, and oh. we'll we'll start from there. So my favorite is at the end of this section. Um, of Fred is describing the prayers that they would say at the Red Center and this ritual where Aunt Lydia would walk along the rows of women, hitting them 
uh, you know, if they sort of moved or slumped a little bit, and they would say things like, Oh God, obliterate me, make me fruitful, mortify my flesh that I may be multiplied, let me be fulfilled. Some of them would get carried away like this, the ecstasy of abasement. Some of them would moan and cry. There is no point in making a spectacle of yourself, Janine, said Aunt Lydia. I like that little, like, sideways F-U to Janine in this section. Janine is not mentioned anywhere else in this section, but, like, we keep getting sucky Janine coming back. Sucky Janine. <laughs> There's a small section in, I think this is the Soul Scrolls section, um, that is a flashback to some of her relationship with her mother. And we haven't really talked a lot about um, a Fred's mother, but I really, really like a Fred's mother as a character. She's just this, like, badass feminist protesting, you know, like, (laughs) hippie. Um, Oh, yeah, she's great. And there's, there's this paragraph, she says, you're such a prude, she would say to me in a tone of voice that was on the whole pleased. She liked being more outrageous than I was, more rebellious. Adolescents are always such prudes. And I think it's funny that she like she says that adolescents are prudes that they can, you know, like still be shocked that <laughs> she's she's seen it all. She's not shocked by anything anymore. But would she be shocked by what's happened now? Like what would what would the mother be shocked by at this point? Like would she you know, would she be surprised? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in this section um of Fred basically says like Myra wasn't surprised by any of this. She sort of like seemed happy about it as if she had, you know, guessed correctly. Um, which I think is a super resonant uh, feeling mm-hmm. in uh, in with recent events. Like, if you're going to have all of your rights taken away from you and all of your property seized, as long as you can say, I told you so, there's that's like one small, you know, solace that you've got. Yeah, man, like, Jon Stewart <laughs> made a whole career out of saying, I told you so. doesn't have first world problems is of Fred in the Republic of Gilead. She has lots of problems. Um, and uh, we'll revisit her again next week when we read uh, the sections Jezebels and Night. This is sections 12 and 13. Um, and this will take us, if you're reading the paperback edition, uh, to page uh, 264. So join us again next week as we continue with a Fred. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. Thanks for listening. Enter, enter, enter library loan. Please rate us high, high, high on iTunes. Find us online at illbook.club. On Twitter, we are at illbookcast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful, awesome Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay okay okay, back to robot sleep until next week.